Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to Your Claim Lawyers, a no-win, no-fee, personal injury claims law firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call 1-800-YOUR-CLAIM or yourclaimlawyers.com.au. This is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Always a great time of the week to have you with us as we celebrate another great sporting life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. And you have to be good to go to one Olympic Games. You have to be terrific to go to two. If you go to five, well, you are something else. And also, one of the great titles in sport is to be an Olympic champion. And I have one with me in the studio today. Lydia Lassler. Lydia, welcome. Thanks for having me. How does that title sit? Uh, Eight years down the track, Olympic champion. Do you still sometimes wake up and sort of (laughs) pinch yourself that you've got that title after your name? Oh, and the good thing about it, it's forever. (laughs) No one can ever take that away from you. And um, gosh, you know, your your career just slips by in an instant. You blink your eye and you're, you know, you've gone from rookie to veteran. So much happens in between. You've had to endure a lot. I especially did through injuries and learn a lot about myself throughout throughout the way and um, figure out how I was going to win an Olympics, which was has been a goal of mine um, ever since I was six years old. So, um, you know, there's there's so much that goes into it, huge team and um, a lot of self-awareness, I guess, developed over the years to stick at it for, for five Olympics, especially going back as a mum and, you know, business owner and, and other important things have kind of popped up in life. So um, it's, yeah, it's been one hell of a ride and it continues from here. <laughs> and it continued all the way to Pyeongchang going mm. back a few months ago. You talk, talked about the fact that it, it goes by so quickly. Mm. When you were standing at the bottom of the hill and it was only two jumps and they didn't work out the way you mm. wanted to, was that the thought that you had when you were standing at the bottom of the hill? Gosh, this has gone fast. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I um, I transitioned out of sport um, really slowly and, and I took my time planning how I was going to do that because, you know, you look at transition out of sport for athletes and it's a really hard thing to do, to retire from anything, to retire from something that you've been doing for so long, something that you've really loved with passion and given, you, you know, all your effort and all your energy towards um, to all of a sudden have to stop that and move on to the next thing is is quite difficult um, for a lot of athletes, including myself. Um, after my fourth Winter Olympics, you know, I, I returned to those Olympics in Sochi as a mum, um, wanting to do the hardest trick a woman had ever done before. And I did it and I came away with a bronze medal, you know, and I would have thought I've got a feeling after that of, you know, that's enough. <laughs> like this is this is what it means to me to now, you know, it's a good good indicator to hang up the boots and, and, and just stop and move on and focus on family, business and life after sport. So why did you push on? Because I had that pull, that, that pull and I couldn't quite put my finger on my why anymore. It wasn't to win an Olympic gold medal or to do the hardest trick anymore, but the love of the sport kept pulling me back and the love of being an athlete and that lifestyle kept pulling me back. And so what I did was um, made a decision to continue on for as long as I enjoyed the sport. And if I was getting enjoyment out of it, um, not necessarily having to push myself the way I did before, but but giving myself a chance to to wean out of a sport, mm. say goodbye to it, say goodbye to the people all around the world that had you know I'd developed close relationships with, um, and and a sport that had given me so much, and so that's kind of how I planned out my final few years leading into Pyeongchang. That I wasn't going to 
you know, aim to do the hardest tricks out there, but I was going to enjoy it. And I was going to um, go out in my style and and give it everything. And look, leading into it, I was winning World Cup, so it wasn't exactly, I, I was still in, you know, definitely in the mix, In in but it just didn't work out. And I was okay with that because at the end, you know, I've got zero regrets. I gave it everything. I went out on my terms and I love the sport still. I've got no bitterness towards it. You know, I want to help other athletes. I want to mentor them. I want to be involved. And look, yeah, I've, you know, spent a lot of time planning for it and, and planning for that kind of the breakup, you know, yeah. the retirement from sport. I reckon you made a really good point about going into Pyeongchang as, as a medal contender because a lot of people get to multiple Olympics, their last one, and they're kind of limping in mm. and it's probably ticking off the last box rather than being a medal yeah. contender. But after what you did at Lake Placid, yeah. you had a real shot at standing on the dais. Yeah, you know, I won World Cups the previous season. I was winning in leading into Pyeongchang. I was rock solid. Um, and, you know, I just... just even even in Pyeongchang, I was rock solid in training. The only jumps I crashed that day were the ones in competition. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes things just don't work out and that's okay. And I think because I've I had a couple of Olympic medals around my neck at that point, it was okay to fail um, because in the past I could rely on those and, and look back on those great performances that I did have and appreciate them more pull out those, you know, dusty medals in that I've been kind of nonchalant about and really appreciate how hard they were to get because they're not easy to win. Yeah. Fail is a word that you used. I don't think many other people would use it. It was not a medal. It wasn't a medal. It wasn't no. a failure. Oh, well. Five Olympics yeah. can't be a failure. No, it's not. It's not. And I don't see it. I see it as another kind of learning experience and it was kind of my way of a really sensible way of saying goodbye to a sport, you know, that I'd loved for so long. And, and, um, and you know, it just didn't work out. And that's the nature of extreme sports. It's the nature of sport in itself. You know, you can't control everything all the time. And there's just um, sometimes it doesn't go your way. And that's, that's okay because I gave it a crack and I've got nothing to regret there. Did you march in Pyeongchang? I had the pleasure of commentating on both the opening and the closing ceremonies. Did you march? I didn't. I was asked to be the flag bearer and, and um, in the most respectful way I declined. Why? Um, and it was a, the second time I declined because I really wanted to put the focus on my performance um, and I really wanted to make sure I was doing everything in my power to have a fresh body. You know, I'm an ageing athlete, 36 years oh, old. Oh, you poor old thing, yeah. <laughs> You know, and I wanted, like, I was really serious about having a great performance and keeping the focus there. That's why we go to the Olympics. Um, and that's where my pride is on the performance for my country. And um, that's what, you know, that's ultimately what I wanted to do. But we had training the next day after the opening ceremony. Um, I was having a few niggles with my body as as it was, hard to maintain. So walking around in minus 15, you know, wasn't going to be good for me. It was pretty chilly. <laughs> it was chilly, you know, <laughs> and minus 18 probably that night. So yeah. kind of all those things. And I'm like, you know what, that's probably not the, the smartest thing for me to do, even though I would love to have carried the flag. Um, I, I value my performance too much to put that at, at any kind of risk. And the other little issue that goes along with these things, and people don't realise, logistics after the ceremony. It's to get hours. yourself back. Yeah. I can tell you that um, after we did the opening ceremony, mm. we queued for a bus for about yes. an hour and a half, yep. and it was minus 20 outside yes. the International Broadcast Centre. So, you know, from our point of view, that's an inconvenience. From an athlete's point Absolutely. of view, that can be really disruptive yeah. to your preparation. Well, I asked. I said, well, what's the turnaround here if I do this? Because we were staying in subside accommodation right near Phoenix Park, which is where we had yep. our events at the, free, the freestyle events. And um, I said, can you tell me what the turnaround is going to be to our chef de mission? And, and he said, look, it's like six hours. You know, I'm just like, I just don't think mm. I can do that. Like, I don't think it's smart for me to do that. I'm sorry, but I'm sure there's someone else, you know, and it ended up being Scotty James that will happily, you know, wave that flag and, and represent our country and team. One last thing about Pyeongchang, having had the pleasure of being a broadcaster at Olympic Games, the one thing that I experience in the month after is a bit of a letdown. Do you get that as an athlete? Absolutely. It's postseason blues. Yeah. Yep, every season. And in particular after after a um, an Olympic cycle 
because it's so intense, it's full on. And you got to look at it as well. I, I tend to look at it because um, I experienced it over many years. I'm like, gosh, I really feel down and a bit lost because you go, go, go. You're travelling from week to week to new countries and you're competing with all this these chemicals in your body in terms of adrenaline, mm. stress, you know, the cortisol. It's, you're on this natural high all the time and then you come back home. And you're so happy to be home in your own bed and with your family and, and things like that. But you're kind of adjusting for, to a new baseline. You've kind of been operating, you know, off the chart up in a different level. And then you have to come back and you're not in a depression. You're just adjusting back down to baseline. And so what you're experiencing, and a lot of other athletes feel the same way after a season or maybe after a big adventure, you know, someone's hiked Mount Everest or run a marathon and there's this, there's this lull afterwards because the focus has shifted and you're adjusting back down to baseline. And I think it's really important for athletes to understand what they're going through. It's not necessarily a depression, but it's just an adjustment and you've got to have the right team around you to help you cope with that. And I guess for you as a Winter Olympian, that's probably amplified by the fact that you are coming from well, that fear. climate yeah. back to Australia, where it is so yes. diametrically opposed to Absolutely. all the conditions you've just experienced. Maybe different for the European athletes because yeah. they're in similar weather. Yeah, but you come back to summer after a winter it's season. It's like a different world yeah. when you come back. Yeah, and you and you come back and, you know, as an aerial skier, I'm used to waking up with a bit of a nervous belly every single day because you didn't know what you were going to get. And some people think, oh, my God, you're crazy for doing that. But you get used to that feeling over time and you actually crave it. And that's what kept me going back to the sport. I wanted to feel that rush of adrenaline, that fear, that un, that tiptoe between uncertainty and certainty, you know, that, that tiptoe between feeling confident and feeling vulnerable. And that sport gave me those feelings and it's an addiction, you know, and it's hard to find yeah. outside of sport. Well, maybe you might have found it in survival I recently. <laughs> what was that experience like for you? It was amazing one of the best things I've ever done and I remember being asked for the sh to go onto the show um in this series called Champions versus Contenders and I was asked before the Olympics and I said look I've got way I can't do this right now I've got way too much on I don't think it's a good idea because I'm already away from my family and my my family we've had to put things on hold or put my business on hold I need to get back home and just get back into life you know and I said look politely declined I can't I can't do this right now even though it would be amazing and I would have loved to and so some time kind of went on and and I was chatting to my husband and said oh by the way you know um I got asked to do Survivor but I just you know I said no and and he's like what like are you kidding me this is this this show's for you. Like, <laughs> you have to do it. And I'm like, really? Really? Like, I didn't expect him to, to be so supportive of it because I thought, you know, after an Olympic cycle, I'm retiring. It's really time for me to just be the mum, be the wife, be at home and be normal for a little bit at least until the next adventure. But but he was all for it. So it was like, okay, I'll renege on that and say yes. And so I said yes and... um got back from the Olympics, had about a month off or six weeks or something like that and off I was to this remote island in Fiji and with 24 people I didn't know and about to embark on, on a new experience. And the way I approached it, I guess, was um, I think this is going to be good for me. Like I always try and see everything as a really positive opportunity rather than kind of seeing as a as you know the f being being afraid to try try something and not know whether it was going to work or suit me or something like that and um or who I was going to meet or if I was going to yeah get blindsided straight away because I was you know a bit of a physical kind of threat coming out of an olympics and things like that so I didn't know how it was going to play out and I didn't know how I was going to cope with the whole survival aspect of it and and the social game but um but what I did know that I thought, what an opportunity to be completely disconnected, you know, from the world. Not meaning I wanted to leave my family, no. But what an opportunity to turn the devices off, to turn my phone off, to um, 
leave my business that I'd never left before. So I had to systemize that, make sure it was all good because I would have no contact with anyone. I'd been running a business from my laptop by myself for 10 years and to have to put that in other people's hands was kind of like another baby, you know, and um, and obviously leaving my kids and my family was, you know, really, really tough. But on the other side, I saw it as an opportunity to, as a segue, I guess, between elite sport and my life, you know, and career as, a, as an athlete and who's now retiring and transitioning. And I thought, what a great opportunity for some soul searching and just to disconnect and find out what my passions are, where come up with some new ideas, what do I want to do next? Um, it's kind of like that that me time as well. And, um, and it turned out to be exactly that. So the prospect of doing that is obviously terrifying because of all the reasons that you're talking about. It's like another child with mm. your business and you're yeah. leaving your children behind. Yes. Was it harder to do than you thought or once you were doing it was it actually something that you found yourself just rolling into was it easier than you thought it was going um, to be it was easier because you know I'd put you know I've got some great staff and I put every it it forced me to put everything to systemize everything in my business and to um, take the load completely off me and put it in charge of other people who I really trusted and who have been doing a great job and and guess what happened? You know, the business continued long after I was, you know, on the island and, um, and it, and it thrived, you know, without me being there. So it was quite empowering to know that it's still ticking along fine without me. I can pick up and go whenever I want to. Um, and I knew that the kids would be fine. My husband is quite incredible. He's, um, obviously used to me picking up and, and going, but it was just, it was really difficult to know that I wasn't going to have any contact with them at all because normally I'd FaceTime, I'd be on Skype, we'd see each other every day, even if I was away, they'd travel with me. And and um, so it was quite, yeah, I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about that and how I was going to cope. So I wrote um, some letters to them and like I did the whole scroll, the survivor scroll, I, you know, stained some paper and burnt the edges and wrote a letter every week <laughs> for him and um, and buried buried some treasures and, you know, had a clue at the end of each letter and what I was up to that week and then the clue to where where a prize was kind of hiding and and so knowing that they had they were having a connection with me every week and receiving a letter from me really helped me through uh, feel feel okay about leaving them I suppose it gave me some um, sanity there on the island just an excitement just knowing it was you know letter day it was letter day today and they were going to hear from me. When you get such a disparate group of people thrust together um, who don't know each other eventually you emerge at the end of it with some friendships. Was there any particular friendship that you really formed in your time in Survivor that is going to stand oh, the test of time? Look, I developed some amazing relationships um, throughout and, and, and an amazing alliance, so I thought, that time, but and that turn and it broke up and things like that, but no hard feelings. And I, I definitely will keep in contact with with quite a few um, of my castaways. And um, we have a bond that is, yeah, it will last a lifetime, I'm sure. Develop some really great friendships. Speaking of a lifetime, I want to explore how it all began and we'll do that on the other side of the break with Lydia Lassler, the Olympic champion on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives. More with Lydia coming up after the break. This is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. What a pleasure it is to have the Olympic champion Lydia Lassler in the studio with me today. Lydia, where did the journey begin for you? Where did you grow up? It was uh, Sunshine area around there? I I did. I grew up in the western suburbs of Melbourne, Sunshine, Footscray, and then um, we moved to a property out in Diggers Rest where mum and dad still live. Um, And... I grew up with three older brothers, um, who and and a family who were very were active, but ne- no one was involved in structured sport, and so I was the youngest of four, the only girl. Did that help you? Do you reckon? Because older brothers tend to rag on little sister. They're they very protective, did. but they push you a bit. They pushed me, and they never let me win a thing. And <laughs> I did it. You know, I was honestly always just trying to keep up with them. 
And um, I think that set the tone for where I was heading in in my life as an aerial skier or as an athlete, just wanting to prove that I was just as good, you know, or I could do the same things the boys were doing. And, of course, Dad would egg that on and, you know, there was this kind of friendly um, competitiveness brewing in the family. But, look, they were active but no one involved in structured sport, no one wanting to pursue sport as, as passionately as I did. I had, you know, my bedroom wall was plastered with, at that point in time, um, I found gymnastics um, as an eight-year-old and that was my passion. That was my first love. Uh, I had it, my bedroom wall plastered with gymnasts and, and my idols. And, um, and Have you, you know, got any idea where that spark came from, given the fact that you, your folks weren't into structured sport? No, I um I know like from my mum and dad are really hard workers. They're they're driven. They kind of head down, bum up. So I knew I had, I've I've got my work ethic from them. But you know the vision of me being an Olympic champion was very strong um, from an early age. And my first recollection of an Olympics was the nineteen eighty eight Seoul Olympics. And I was six. We were on a European um, vacation at the time and visiting my my dad's home country, uh, Cyprus, and I remember sitting out in a in a little cafe, I can vividly remember it, eating our, our um, lunch and watching, you know, the 88 Seoul Olympics on the TV and just mesmerised by it. It was swimming and it was athletics. It was, you know, just I wanted – I fell in love with the Olympic movement of this notion of competing against the best, the best of the best, you know, being the best and standing on top of that dice and belting out – you know, the national anthem with tears streaming down your face and a nice shiny thing around my neck. You know, I wanted that. I just fell in love with it straight away. And um, I didn't know what sport because I hadn't been involved in e-sport up until that point, a little bit of dancing and, you know, calisthenics and things. And I was quite acrobatic. And um, mum, you know, eventually put two and two together and said, oh, I should probably put you in gymnastics. And the first day in, you know, I was having, I think, a, a physical test to know where they were going to put, which group to put me in. And, and, um, and I, there was this rope challenge, so this, and and I was a bit of a monkey. I was climbing trees and hanging off monkey bars and doing all that that thing from such a young age. So I've kind of shimmied up this rope, and I'm looking at my mum who's sitting, going, "What are you doing?" Because it was really high, and waving with one arm, <laughs> going, "Hey, that's me! Look at me!" You know, and they put me straight into this, you know, kind of advanced group, and off and off I went, and I loved it. It gave me. A focus, a love. I was so driven. No one understood in my family what I was on about, but I knew I was going to the Olympics as a gymnast. I thought I was the next Nadia Comedici, that I, I was going to be an Olympic champion. And it was so clear to me, and I couldn't understand why everyone else just wasn't on board. So mum and dad didn't really know how to handle that, you know, and, and what they did was value family time, which is fantastic. I was never allowed to train on a weekend because that's where we went to to lawn and and holidayed and our weekends were spent there as a family. So I had to be on, I wasn't allowed to do more than three days a week of training. So I um, had to learn how to be really efficient in the training that I did. And then I'd take a home program, lock myself up in my room on the weekends and just do presses to handstands and my, just to, just to, you know, improve myself and get stronger and because I knew I was missing out on training that other people were doing and I didn't want that. Like yeah. I wanted it to be the best and I was like, can't you understand? I need I need to go, I need to train more. I need to tra- you need to let me go on, you know, weekend training sessions. And yeah, so it was interesting. I was chosen to go to the elite squad um, and that meant to, at the time, um, to go to Cheltenham, which was on the other side of town, or go to Canberra to the AIS. That was the only options. And mum and dad said, no, you're not going. We're not breaking up the family. You're not going. And I bet it's my only chance to go to an Olympics. You don't understand. I was livid, you know. And um, they said, no, they stood their ground and said, you're not, you're not going. And so then I was like, well, that's my only chance. I'm not going to make it to the Olympics. So I stayed in the national stream program as a gymnast and won everything there was to win and, and – um, at the age of 15 when I couldn't win any more in that category, um, I was asked again to, to join an elite program at MLC at this point. A few more had popped up and um, mum and dad probably felt a little bit guilty and let me go. And I lasted about 18 months. I kind of improved astronomically, but my body broke down at the same same time. And um, so I was heading or aiming for Sydney 2000, but um, just got injured 
beforehand and had to call it quits. Is that the first retirement. (laughs) Is that the danger of that sport, that you start at such an early age with gymnastics and we often see the gymnasts who are 18, Mm. 19, say they're burnt out, they just can't cope with it anymore? Yeah, I I believe that there's complete overtraining in gymnastics Um, and I went from training 12 hours a week to 33 hours a week. So it's in a growing body. So it's a no-brainer for why my body broke down so so quickly, so rapidly. So, um, And, yeah, the culture of gymnastics is just that constant conditioning and not much rest. So I think um, it's like swimming as well. They're starting out early and burning out early as well. So, look, I love gymnastics. You know, it set the blueprint for me. It gave me the skill set to, to move on to other things. And I retired. I, I made that decision. I said, I'm not going to make it. I was realistic. So I'm going to have to stop. And I was gutted. I, I, I thought I failed, you know, and that um, I f- thought that I wouldn't get a second chance um, to do, to, to make it to an Olympics. I thought that dream was kind of over. And so I, you know, I was in VCE, obviously finished up my schooling and about halfway through VCE um, year 12, I was approached by the Olympic Winter Institute who were looking for ex-gymnasts, had this kind of out of the box idea. We're going to find some ex-gymnasts, teach them how to ski and turn them into aerial skiers. Had you ever skied before at that time? Never, And um, no, we weren't a a snow family. Like we never took trips to the snow. Um, We were beach goers and um, the, the snow world was really foreign, you know, to us. And, and um, so I knew nothing about it. Um, I went in for a meeting and they played like a highlight reel. Of course, no crashes, all the great jumps. Of course. <laughs> I'm like, this looks fabulous. This looks like me. You know, this is exciting. And they had the sales pitch out there. You know, you get to travel the world. You'll be independent. Like for a 17, 18-year-old, it was, you know, very, 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 very uh, – it looked it looked great. It looked perfect for me. And then they just had to dangle the carrot and mention, you know, the Olympics, the Winter Olympics at this point. And I was kind of like hook, line and sinker. I mean, I just – I want another chance and um, didn't know if I was going to like it, but at least thought, well, you'll learn to ski, pick up another skill and what's the worst that can happen. Tell us the time frame from the first time that you put a ski on to the Olympic Games. What what was the... 18 months. That's ridiculous. It was at the time. It was, yeah. It was... Um, I was a guinea pig. I was. A, it was a pilot program and there was no structure. It was quite... Um, when I think about it now, <laughs> I was reckless because I didn't have a stop button, but there also wasn't any structure around it to to really look after the talent that you were bringing through. You know, it was kind of just trial and error. When you say you were reckless, did you put yourself in danger? Yeah, all the time. Yeah, jump through pain. Irresponsibly so. Just, just um, yeah, well, yes. Like I just, I, I, I overtrained. I did kind of all the wrong things, but I thought they were the right things, you know, like because I thought hard work will get me anywhere. But it took me a long time to realise that I had to work smarter, not harder. And um, after going through a lot of injuries, because I did push so hard in the beginning, um, I learnt that the hard way. But um, at the beginning, I wanted to, I had just had someone planted a seed. It was my first coach, Christoph, and he said, you could probably qualify for these Olympics. This was like 12 months out of the Olympic Games. I wasn't even on the shadow team. Like I had no name at all in the sport. I was just starting to ski and put flips, you know, do flips on one flip on skis. You know, I was no one. And he just planted the seed. And from there I was just like, nah, I'm going to get there. So I pushed. I did triple the amount of jumps anyone would do in a session, like ridiculous numbers, and pushed through pain, pushed through injury, to the point where it was quite irresponsible on, I guess, the coaching staff as well, management, and as well as myself. Like, I just didn't have a stop button. Mm. But you got there. And I got there. <laughs> that little girl <laughs> yeah. who'd visualise going to the Olympic Games yeah. was in Salt Lake City. Mm. What and was, she wanted to win. What was that <laughs> moment like? Of course she wanted to win because that's she, in your DNA. It's but, crazy. She went there and she's like, yeah, no, I can win this. <laughs> But, I have no business thinking that, but I, I, you know, in my head, I was already doing the tricks that all the best were doing. Yeah. You know, I'd pushed myself in 18 months to go from nothing to doing triple twisting double somersaults on skis. You know, I had no experience. It was the first year I'd ever competed in the sport that year, the Olympic year. I qualified miraculously um, and there I was and I made it to the final 
and finished eighth. <laughs> and what was your reaction to finishing eighth? I was bummed. <laughs> I was like, oh, eighteen months after you started I didn't skiing, land that one properly, and you know, and after those eighteen months after, I know, and everyone else was like, oh gosh, I can't believe you made it, and who is this girl, and and um, and I, I was going and thinking, no, I can, I I can win this, and I was bummed at myself for not landing clean cleaner, and um, at the time, my body was such a train wreck from the pounding and the hits that I was taking, big crashes and abuse, crazy abuse to my body, that I needed, I'd I'd torn, I had a grade two tear in my medial ligament in my knee. I had a cyst growing in my spine that was causing numbness down my right leg, which was causing me to go crooked off the jumps. I had a shoulder reconstruction afterwards. I'd smashed my shoulder up. I was a mess, like a complete mess. How I even competed there, I have no idea, but um, I made it. You did make it and you made the final <laughs> yeah. and that probably just whetted your appetite for oh, what would go yeah. ahead. And we'll talk about that when we come back on the other side of the break. We'll talk about the fact that Elisa Camplin was around at that time mm-hmm. and whether that was a positive influence for you as an Australian in a sport that Australians are not necessarily known for. That's all still ahead in our chat with the Olympic champion Lydia Lassler on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives. More with Lydia coming up after the break. This is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. What a great pleasure it is to have the Olympic champion Lydia Lassila in the studio with me. So the first Olympics, Salt Lake City is there. It has whetted your appetite. I spoke about Elisa Camplin. Was it a positive thing to have her there as another Australian? Did it give you a marker that you were chasing at the time? Absolutely. She won the Olympics in Salt Lake City and that gold medal was what I wanted. So I started to just shadow her (laughs) and copy everything she was doing. And it took me some time to realise that that didn't quite work for me. We're two very different people, but um, it really helped me to have that competitiveness there. We were one and two, one and two. The next year after Salt Lake City, I was number two in the world behind her. And, um, you know, we were kind of sharing the podium one and two spots. So it was um, definitely good to have that competitiveness there. It wasn't always a healthy rivalry. Um, you know, we spent a lot of time away with the team, nine to ten months away every year. Um, did you have overseas. your moments? We did, yeah, absolutely. It was difficult to manage strong personalities. You had Jackie Cooper in the mix as well. And um, so, yeah, to navigate that period of time was was difficult to, to fit in um, in, in, in the team and make sure that I was getting everything I needed was, was a challenge. Injuries, as you've already discussed, Mm. are a part of your sport. Mm. They simply have to be. But in 2005, Mm. the dream almost seemed as though it was going to be shattered. Mm. What happened? I was up in this up and down cycle, you know, of I was achieving success. I was ranked number two in the world. I was winning World Cups, but I was always injured and... um, and I hated that situation because I felt like I could be more and I just didn't feel like I could get out of that kind of pattern that I was creating for myself. And I didn't realise at the time that I was pushing hard when I should have been pulling back and resting and, and um, periodisation and, and overtraining and all of that mix. And so leading into the, the 2006 Olympics, um, I was already doing triple somersaults like the men. That was my aim. I wanted to jump like the men from, from day dot and, um, and was already doing them. And I had this just a freakish training accident at the start of the summer where we jump into the water ramps and, and learn of all our skills. And I caught an edge on the, on the plastic surface and tore my ACL. You know, this is six months before the Olympics. In, and those are the Olympics that I thought I've got a chance to win here. I'm going to win these ones, you know. And and um, so that threw a spanner in the works. Um, I did the rehab. I had the surgery um, to try and make it back in time for those games, and I did. And I worked hard, and and um, I did one World Cup before the 2006 Olympics, and I won it. And I thought, okay, well, you know, a lot of stuff has happened, but at least I'm kind of back to square one. I'm in peak performance. I'm I'm, um, it's going to be okay. And so I got to Torino and my knee blew up on the flight and it was a mess. Like I was really hurting and, um, I was jumping well, but physically I was a mess. And, um. Did you know you were on that line? Yep. Where something could happen? Yep. 
I knew it. I knew something was brewing and I remember saying to our physio at the time, am I going to make it? He's like, just two more days, am I going to make it? And um, he's like, yes, Lid, you know, you're going all right. And I was getting stuck on stairs. Like I couldn't even make it up the stairs because my knee would lock, let alone jump, you know, and how I was doing that, I didn't even know. So semi-final, final jump, I've nailed the first one. I'm sitting in second position behind Jackie Cooper for the qualifications and um one more jump to go and just on the landing I felt that kind of knee snap and the, the ACL re-tear and, you know, those Olympics were kind of over straight away, <laughs> done. All that hard work to get there, it was, it was, a, mighty, it was a mighty struggle to get there um, and it took a lot out of me and then just to have that all kind of just come crumbling down was devastating. It's impossible for those of us who love sport to watch that vision and not be affected by it. Mm. What was your first emotion what was the first thing that went through your head I think it's like it wasn't pain so much because I did scream (laughs) like it was blood curdling screams but it wasn't the pain of the injury it was the pain of the loss of the opportunity like everything just came crashing down my dreams were smashed in a in an instant and it it, that that chance was gone and in a sport like mine you don't know if you're going to get another chance you know a lot of people wrote me off it's a you know double ACL injury how much more can you take my family wanted me to you know stop you know they just wanted me to be safe and and so I took some time away um and to recover mentally emotionally you know obviously the physical component as well and um from the trauma of it because but I it's funny because you know I you know, everyone was kind of like doubting whether I would come back. But for me, it was very clear that I would continue. But I had to figure out what I was doing wrong. I was in this up and down cycle of injury, success, injury. And and I guess the um, the the trauma of the injury component had become far greater than the pleasure of the success. And I had to change something at that point. And that was a real turning point in my career. So it was a point where I made the decision to invest in my mental game in a big way and um, got in touch with a guy called Jeffrey Hodges who I'd been studying his books and they, the material in Sports Mind and, and Champion Thoughts, Champion Feelings um, really resonated with me. I downloaded his visualisation tracks and and really, really enjoyed his work and so I rang him. I said, I need to, to work with you. I want to get through this but I don't know what I'm doing wrong and I don't know my limitations and why I can't seem to get a break here. And so we we began. We began the work. I had a year off. Um, I also did an interesting thing that year. I started my own business and Body Ice was born from the disaster of Torino Olympics and I was sitting back in the cafeteria at the Torino Olympics and I had a, a bag of ice balancing on my knee and it was leaking and slipping all over the place and I was frustrated. I was miserable. Picked it up and I'm like, threw it down and said, you know, someone needs to make a decent bloody ice pack that doesn't leak and slip all over the place. And kind of the same time I spat those words out, I get the ding light bulb, you know, and I knew I was going to have, I had to have a lot of surgery. I was going to have a year off. I was going to take my time this time. So I knew I was going to have time away from sport. So I, I kind of decided then I was like, oh, I can do this. I will do it. I'm going to find a solution to a need that I've got. And so I was you know, pretty much as soon as I got home, I was drawing up designs and contacting manufacturers and had it all planned out and, and, um, and you know, went off to Asia and got some samples made and went to trade fairs, met with manufacturers, all, all hobbling in between surgeries, you know, on and off crutches and things like that, hobbled into my knee surgeon's um, office one day and with with the prototype strapped to my knee and, and he said, oh, what's that? It's like, oh, this is my new, this is my new thing. This is my new business, Body Ice. Custom, um, you know, ice packs made for specific joints, so shoulders, back, knees, ankles, so that it doesn't fall off, doesn't leak and it stays cold and it just stays in place. And he's like, that's brilliant. I'll order 500. And, and so I was like, wow, okay, I've just found my target market. And so Body Ice was born. And um, straight into the orthopaedic surgeons and hospital market. And honestly, that period of time where I blew out my knee for the second time in six months was the best thing that could have happened to me. Every cloud has a silver lining. It does, because it gave me perspective, gave me something to focus on, gave me um, an opportunity to realise that I I wasn't doing everything right as an athlete and I was determined to find out 
what I was missing. So I engaged Jeffrey Hodges. I started a business which ended up funding me throughout the rest of my career and taking the burden off having to find sponsorship and endorsements, which are hard to come by as a winter Olympian (laughs) and the restrictions around being an Olympian. And um, so, so it ended up being the best thing that could have ever happened to me. Post Torino, apart from Jeffrey Hodges, apart from you becoming a businesswoman, were you blown away by the the support that you got from the Australian public? Because as I said, it was it was gut wrenching mm, what happened yeah. to you, and everyone got into your corner. They did, yeah. And I made an effort to pull people that I needed into my corner to put my hand up and say, "I need some help here. I want to do this. I've just got to figure out a way to do it." And so. You know, we got to work mentally. That was the biggest challenge. I got the, the, you know, the physios on board that prior to that, we'd never travelled with a full-time physio. So how can you keep on top of injuries if you're constantly bashing yourself and you can't recover, you know, and there's no expert medical advice there. So we implemented a full-time physiotherapist in the team. And um, I also um, went and sourced my own coach, someone that really bought into my vision, which was to be the best female area aerial skier that had ever lived and she wanted to jump like a man (laughs) and she wanted to do big tricks because at the time you didn't need to do big tricks to win and so I got a lot of resistance there when I said I want to do big tricks Mm. I want to do the biggest and hardest tricks that there is because well they were like well you don't need to you don't need to do that to win. Why would you risk it? Yeah, just win by a tenth of a point mm. or, or the barest or possible do, margin. Just do your triple twisting doubles. Yeah. They're solid. You know, you don't have to do triple somersaults to win. But that's not in your DNA, no, is it? No, it wasn't. And I wanted to prove that it wasn't. And I had to find the right coach for me that was bought into that vision. So I had Jeffrey Hodges and then I found Mish Roth, a Swiss coach. And um, I then went and trained with him. And um, it just all aligned, really. I... One, worked on my mental game and broke down my limiting beliefs about myself, that I was always injured, that I was unlucky. No, it wasn't that. It was that I pushed when I should have been pulling back and I didn't, and I learned how to be, you know, a smarter athlete. Um, I learned how to be more planning, planned and systematic and how to break down these massive goals that I had into small bite-sized pieces, you know, so that every day I had one little thing to do and I wouldn't get overwhelmed by the big, bigger picture of winning an Olympic gold medal or doing the hardest trick a woman had ever done. So prior to that, I, I didn't have much planning. I didn't have much structure. I flew by the seat of my pants. So with all of that behind you, and you were in control of your own destiny mm. in lots of areas of your life. Yes. You stand there at Vancouver. You've got everything organised the way you want. Are you standing there thinking... This is my time. They can't beat me here. Yeah. It was one of those feelings of invincibility and I couldn't put a foot wrong and, and, um, and I, you know, you know, I just, I knew that any situation that was thrown at me that night, I could cope with and I would handle and I'd win. And you did? (laughs) Doing triple somersaults, doing tricks women hadn't done before. (laughs) So you stand on the dais. Did those moments as an eight-year-old when mm. you used to visualise standing there with that medal around your neck and the tears streaming mm. down your face, did yeah. they cross your mind? You know, that's so funny because when I, I was so surprised that I wasn't crying because the medal ceremony was a day after the fact that I'd won and I did all my crying by myself in my hotel room, in the shower and just, you know, given what I'd gone through and the setback of Torino and how hard I fought to get through that and getting to Vancouver and sticking in my lane and and fulfilling my vision and getting the people on board to help me do that and the growth that I'd gone through, the self-awareness that I'd gained, the mental edge that I'd gained in that process. You know, I looked at that medal and just saw my whole life flash before me and cried and cried and then by the time I was standing on top of the dais I was just happy I was elated I was exhausted you know and um, it was quite surreal. At that moment was that the end of the journey was that okay I'm the Olympic champion now what more can I do? That's funny because I got my medal and I went back to our hotel room and I got on the on Skype to Jeff Hodges and I was showing him and um, and I was looking at him like is this it (laughs) you know is this gold medal, is this as far as I can go? Is this what success is? Is this the end for me? Is this my potential? And my first answer was no. I think I can do more. And so I decided then I wasn't going to quit. I was going to keep going. I was going to have a break and 
get connected with with life out of sport again and have a baby and you know and 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 um become mum and but with the intention to come back and um you know had really good balance in life but that drive was still there and I didn't want to park that I'd, I I would have regretted it if I didn't um keep going yeah we're going to take a final break when we come back we'll talk about Sochi and we'll talk about that desire of yours to push the envelope, to take it one step further than anyone had ever been able to take it, and you were able to do that. Mm. We'll talk about that when we come back with our final segment with Lydia Lassila on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives more with Lydia, coming up after the break. This is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Regrettably, this is our final segment with the Olympic champion, Lydia Lassila. Uh, can't we get more time? We need more time. All right, let's, let's go ahead mm-hmm. to Sochi. And I talked about pushing the boundaries. Mm-hmm. How far did you push the boundaries going to Sochi? You wanted to do something that nobody had ever done before. I did, and I wanted I wanted to back up an Olympic medal, gold medal. I wanted to win another gold medal, but I also wanted to be the first woman to do this quad twisting triple somersault, a trick that I saw the men do. You know, when I was an eighteen year old, first watching the sport for the first time, and and um, did people think you were mad to yes, even consider it? Yeah, they they uh, same thing. Ask why? Why you don't need to? Why would you do it? You know, and because I, I wanted to prove that I could, and I wanted to prove that I could not only as a female but as a mum. You know, a person juggling a business, like the you know wearing many hats, and um, and I couldn't find a legitimate reason why that wasn't possible. I had a support team around me, and we all bought into the vision, and um, again we went forward with that and did the training, did the work, you know, and and um, did it on water first, and it was safe, and qualified it, and it was time to move it on snow prior to, prior to Sochi Olympics. How do you? I'm sure the the layman's question is, and I'm sure you've been asked this a million times, how do you know where you are in in such a complicated manoeuvre where things have to happen so quickly it's and you're, you're in a very vulnerable position? It's three seconds of busyness. What are your markers in the middle of it? How, you want to see the you want to see your landing point throughout each flip. So it's kind of like a ballerina spotting every time she does a rotation. You want to see that again as, as you're flipping, and if you lose vision on the ground, you lose yourself in the air and you're blinded and you don't know where you are. You don't know which way is up or down. So um, you practice on the trampolines, you practice on the water ramps, you get the mechanics of that trick ingrained and then the scary part is then transferring that to snow and, you know, that question of whether it's going to work or not. Mm. (laughs) And um, leading into the Sochi Olympics, you know, I had quite a bit on my plate. I was mum to Kai and he was just two years old and travelling with a a little person and, and, you know, and um, as a family unit was was quite a logistical challenge and had mums and mother-in-laws on board and whatnot and we were um it was an adventure it was amazing and um I also had a film crew following me at the time who were documenting everything um to make the full feature documentary The Will to Fly which rolled out the following year and so there was a bit going on and then going into my fourth Olympics um wanting to defend but as I got closer to it that it shifted it shifted from being in, like the importance of an Olympic, another Olympic gold medal, that quite that that why shifted more to getting this trick done, being the first woman to do the quad twisting triple somersault, and that became a why because I wanted to prove that that was possible and be the first person to do it. So that season was quite tricky. Um, I was I was in good form. I um, was winning World Cups. I was building to that skill, but we. You know, had a lot of weather issues, and and um, and leading into the Olympics, we had you know cold snaps of minus twenty five, which just wasn't safe to do it. And we got to the Sochi Olympics, and finally, the day before the competition qualifications, everything aligned, and it was time. You know, I felt ready to to do it, and I'll never forget that because we're at this you know competitive environment, the Olympics, and all the teams are lined up, and this is the last final training session before the showdown, and and um, I was the last jumper and my coach said, you know, now. And I'm like, okay, here we go. We're doing it now. And I was doubled over green, feeling sick. And off we went and I did it. And once I was airborne, I was like, ah, oh, I know how to do this. You know, the mechanics kick in that you've been ingrained. And I, I skied away from it. 
And I turned around and it was like my Rocky moment because the whole field of my competitors, all the nations were on the on the knoll part underneath the jumps, clapping and cheering at an Olympic Games. You know, that was one of the most memorable moments for me. You used to have Rocky on your uh, laptop, didn't you? You'd... Oh, all the time. Box yeah. set comes out every season. Yeah, <laughs> Rocky three when I'm feeling a little bit, you know, lost confidence. Yeah. <laughs> so you pull it off, but I want to go back to before you pulled it off, and we talked about technically what you need to do. Mm-hmm. The other question that I'm sure you've been asked: Were you ever scared? Oh, because always. When it goes wrong, it goes wrong. It can go spectacularly mm-hmm. wrong. Yeah. Yeah. A lot worse than knee injuries mm. could happen to yes. you. Yeah. What happens when that moment of being frightened hits you? You have to be able to compartmentalise your feelings and what's going on in life. Like the fear of a skill or the worry of being a mum in a dangerous sport and how that's going to affect your child. Or, you know, you, you can't think about all these things at once because it's overwhelming and you're not going to be good at anything, you know. So... It's important to be able to separate them. So when I was on the hill, I was in athlete mode, Lydia mode, not mum mode, Lydia athlete mode, and I was 100% focused and I needed to be there in that present moment. If I wasn't, I'd know it. i feel it. You can feel when things are not quite right and I'd step away, whereas before I would have pushed on and hurt myself, <laughs> you know, but no, I became much smarter and listened to my gut instincts and um, knew when, you know what, today's not the day, we're not pushing today, but then taking advantage on the days that I really felt good and confident and ready to go. Last question, because we're out of time. (laughs) You've got a business. You're a mum, so you've got a lot to keep you busy. But when you're an athlete and when you're as driven as you've been over the Mm. years, do you think that urge will come back when Beijing's coming around (laughs) in a few years' time? Do you think you'll get itchy feet? No, I think it's parked. That part of me is parked now, and I feel really good about how I've transitioned out of sport. And, And to be honest, I'm excited about what's in the future, um, I'm excited about my business, Body Ice, and the direction that that's going. We're moving into more of a of a mental training scope now. I want to acknowledge that when anyone goes through a physical trauma, yes, they have to recover physically from an injury, but there's also that emotional and mental side of it. And so I've just rolled out a mental training program in conjunction with Jeff Hodges. We've developed it together, and, and that's now available through Body Ice. And I want to help people you know, find the confidence they need to, to, to connect with that future self and, and empower them with the skills and the tools to do that. You've empowered a lot of people with your story. Um, it was probably about 14 or 15 years ago that I interviewed you for the first time. Um, the cocky little rookie, yeah, <laughs> probably. Well, you, you had reason to be cocky because as um, events subsequent to that have proven, you've proven to be a great champion. You've done things that a lot of people have never been able to dream about. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Lydia Lassler joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives, and we'll have another great champion of sport with us same time next week. Hope you can join us then. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely, and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 91.